Keep your Bibles open to the second chapter of Philippians. We're going to get there, but it's going to take us a little while. And uh, there's some other groundwork we need to lay before we address that passage this morning. I have some other passages we'll look at on the screen together. We're in a series on highlights in the life of Christ. And today we look at a particular aspect of our Lord's life. And that is the fact that Jesus Christ became a man. This morning I want us to put our thoughts on the incarnation of Christ. We might say this was a low light for Jesus, where he stepped out of heaven and took upon himself human flesh. But for us it certainly is a highlight. It was J.I. Packer that wrote in his classic work entitled Knowing God, But Packer describes people finding Christianity hard to believe. He says they often find Christianity hard to believe because of doctrines like the atonement. How is it that one man can die, a man from Nazareth, between two thieves, and that somehow provide forgiveness and secure heaven for people? He says people balk at that. Or how can it be that He was actually raised from the dead, that someone could actually be brought back to life who had been confirmed dead. He says those things caused people to stumble. Or even the miracles that Jesus did. How can it be that he would make the deaf to hear and the blind to see and cause the lame to walk again and even raise someone from the dead himself? Packer acknowledges those difficulties that people have, but he says appropriately, the real staggering Christian miracle is the fact that God became man. Because if God became man in Jesus Christ, then of course all of those other things make sense. But he said it's this miracle at which people truly should stumble. This is the great truth that sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. God has not remained remote and unapproachable. He has come to us to be made like us. He didn't just write a letter and deliver it. He didn't just send an angelic messenger. He didn't just shout his law from fiery Sinai. But the infinite God became an infant. This indeed is a miracle. It's a mystery. How did this happen? Why did it happen in this way? What are the consequences of this? And what are we to make of this? And what are we to learn of this incarnation? This morning I want to address those very issues with you. If you're keeping track this morning, it's very simple. We want to look together at the mystery of incarnation. What exactly happened when God became man? We'll note the necessity of incarnation. Why was that the only way? Why this way? Finally, we're going to look at the humility of the incarnation. And that will take us to Philippians chapter 2 and note what we are to learn 
from this amazing miracle that God has performed. So this morning in looking at the incarnation of Christ, I want us to first note together the mystery of the incarnation. John chapter 1, we've looked at that gospel in previous weeks and we've noted that Jesus is called the Word. He is the eternal existing Word, God Himself, self-existent. In Him was life, that life was a light to mankind. And yet the 14th verse of the first chapter of John says this, that that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh When we hear those words, if you're familiar with them and you're used to them, they almost pass through our minds without careful thought. But please think with me. How is that possible? God made man? What happened? Well, we need to understand some things that are very important to understand in answering this question. What happened when the Word became flesh? And I have some passages. You're welcome to turn to them, but we'll go through them quickly. I have them on the screen for you. And we need to understand some things that are very important of what the Bible teaches, and more importantly, perhaps, what it doesn't teach when Jesus became man. What does this mean for us? When the Word became flesh, number one, we need to understand that Jesus took on an actual human body. Well, what was this body like? I mean, we know what it's like to have a human body. Was it like ours? Was it different than ours? It seems like this would be a special case. However, we're told in the book of Hebrews, in the second chapter in the 14th verse, We read that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's a reference to Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. In the past, there have been people that have tried to describe Jesus' body and even his blood as something superhuman, something that must be different because he's the God-man and it has to be different than our own flesh and blood. After all, it only seems right And yet the writer of the book of Hebrews makes it very clear that when Jesus took a human form, he took on the same form like ours, yet without sin. He took on a literal human body, this flesh and blood, as the writer of Hebrews says. Well, how did that happen? How did the Word take this on? Secondly, we understand that He only not had a body like ours, but Mary would conceive in her womb, and that's how it would happen. Luke chapter 1 and verse 31 reads of Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is how it would happen. It would happen through conception. The word of God would enter the womb of Mary, as it were, be conceived, And there would be this natural process that we know today of how everybody comes into the world. And this was by God's choice that a virgin would conceive. We're told in Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come and God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, there would be a natural birth process. 
It wouldn't be anything different than what is experienced today. The natural process of the growth in the womb to the birth and the growth of a child. And we're told in Romans chapter 1 in verses 2 and 3, it says of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. He would be a descendant of David. What this means is, is that there would be a genetic connection with David according to the flesh. Now, what does that mean? Well, we need to understand that when God became man, when Jesus entered the womb of Mary, that Mary contributed all that any woman would contribute to a baby, except for sin. The genetic code, that would be a part of it. Descendant from David, as was Mary. You could put it this way, half of the chromosomes of Jesus were Mary's. The other half were obviously supplied by God himself and the Holy Spirit, including that all-important Y chromosome that would determine the sex of the child, making him male. Well... How does that happen? This is what God says happened. The Holy Spirit would overshadow Mary. That thing to be born of her would be called the Son of God. This is a mystery, but Jesus would take on human flesh just like ours. It would happen through natural processes. Yet it was a virgin birth, that unique in itself. But this is how Jesus would take on flesh and enter into the world. He had a human body. There's no doubt about that. Jesus also had a human mind. He had a human mind. What does that mean? Well, how do you make sense of this verse, speaking of Jesus in Luke 2? And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. You say, I thought he was God. Didn't he know anything? How does he increase in wisdom? When Jesus took on flesh, he took on a human mind. That means he grew in his understanding. He limited himself to know only what the Father had chosen to reveal to him. He had a natural upbringing, growing in wisdom, in stature, that's physically, in favor with God, that's spiritually, and with man, that's socially. Jesus, the Son of God, developed in all of these ways. Can you imagine that? Not only that, we're told in the scripture that Jesus had human emotion. That's a part of being human. In fact, emotions are a part of God. God has emotion. We're told in John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus sorrowed. He experienced sorrow. He experienced righteous anger. He experienced joy and peace and contentment. This was all a part of his life. It wasn't something supernatural. Jesus naturally had these qualities about him. He had genuine human emotion. 
And finally, we know this about Jesus, that when he came and became flesh, Jesus had a human will. He had a human will. For instance, look at what John 6 says. John 6, 38, we read, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Here's two wills in this verse. There's the will of God and there's the will of Jesus. And what he's describing in this verse is a sense that he had a human will that was separate and distinct from that divine will. But what Jesus did with his own will and faculty of choice was he constantly and perfectly submitted it to the divine will in all things. But Jesus possessed a human will. This will was always subject to the Father. Even in the face of great trouble and suffering. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22? And Jesus says, not as I will, but as you will. And he submits his will, this human will, to the will of the Father. This is what happened when Jesus took on flesh, a human body, a human mind, human emotions, human will. All of that was complete. But perhaps what is more important when you think of that, okay, how does all of that work? Jesus took on full humanity in all of these areas, yet maintains deity. How does this all work together? What we need to understand is what it doesn't mean. What didn't happen when Jesus became flesh? Here's four other things to consider. When Jesus became flesh, he didn't cease to be God. It wasn't that somehow he entered a new kind of category and he put off all of his deity so that he might simply exist as a human until the time of his resurrection when he got it back. Jesus didn't cease to be God. He maintained his full deity while walking on earth. We'll read that in Philippians chapter 2. We read it this morning. We'll look at it a little bit. The other thing we need to understand is that when Jesus became flesh, it wasn't like God just lived in a human body. God didn't simply live in a human body. Sometimes people think of this when Jesus. Okay, when Jesus came, it was like, it was like an infilling. Okay, I'm a man, but the Bible teaches me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that I have the Spirit of God dwelling within me. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit as your resident. Is that what happened? God just kind of inhabited this <clears throat> shell, and therefore, that's, it was kind of an indwelling. No, because that would be, would be outside of what the Scripture teaches. The Bible explicitly states that Jesus had a full human nature and a full divine nature. When the Holy Spirit comes to live within me, it's not like I suddenly take on a divine nature. It's no, I have the influence of the Holy Spirit living within me, but I still have only one nature, that's my human nature. When Jesus took on flesh, he had an entirely human nature and a full, entirely divine nature. And those two natures were combined in one person. If you want a technical word for that, here's, here's a way to impress your friends this afternoon, okay? 
This is the hypostatic union. You ever heard of that? Theologians have talked about this for millennia. The hypostatic union. It's two natures, fully human, fully divine, but they're united in one person. You say, all right, well, the Bible tells us that, that Jesus had these two full natures, but in one person, it kind of sounds like he would be schizophrenic, right? I mean, is that the human Jesus talking or the divine Jesus talking? And yet the Bible clearly demonstrates that Jesus didn't become two people. For instance, when he prays in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, he doesn't use plural pronouns to refer to himself. He speaks of himself as I and me. And he's clearly cognizant and aware of the fact that he is one person, but has these two natures. Nor did Jesus become a mixture of God and man. It wasn't like there was this mixing of the divine and the human natures where you have a a deified humanity or a humanized deity and it's something different that we've never seen. They were without mixture, fully God, fully man, one person. What I've gone over with you briefly this morning is really the orthodox position on the humanity and incarnation of Jesus. And we would state it this way. It was at the incarnation that the second person of the Godhead took on a full human nature without separation or division. He already had the divine nature. What he took to himself was a full human nature and that was not separated or divided in any way. It was fully human, fully God, one man. I've given you this illustration before, but I think this helps. We would state the truth about Jesus in three ways. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Jesus is one. I had a seminary professor that told me that's a three watermelon problem. Like, well, what do you mean by that? He said, if you take watermelons, you can pick up one watermelon and hold it, and you can maybe grab another watermelon and hold it. But when you throw that third one in, you've got real problems. How am I going to hold on to that third one? I just, I don't know how to juggle it. I can't do it. And he said, this is the truth about Jesus. Jesus is one. Yes. And Jesus is God. I can hold on to those things. But you throw in Jesus is man. And my mind just goes. But the Bible plainly teaches us this. This is the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. It's no wonder in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that Paul would write and he would say this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. This is a mystery. Yet it's the truth of God. 
That Jesus Christ took upon himself full humanity. It was done through a virgin conception, uniting full deity and full humanity in one person. And this is the truth of your Bible. The mystery of the incarnation is in many ways incomprehensible. Can you understand how this is an amazing miracle? And yet, we need to understand it's an absolute necessity. It has to be this way. Why? Well, secondly, let's note the necessity of the incarnation. Why did it have to be this way? That Christ was fully God and fully man. What was the necessity of this? Well, the necessity of the incarnation, number one, it was necessary to pay a debt we all owe. Do you know you're in debt today? You say, well, yeah, I know. I got a mortgage, I got car payment, got credit card, whatever. That's not the kind of debt I'm talking about. We owe a debt to God because of our sin. It is right that God demand from us perfect righteousness, absolute perfection. And when we fall from that, when we sin, which means to miss the mark of that absolute perfection, We owe God a debt. And the Bible says that the payment for your sin is what? Death. Do you know why everybody dies? It's because we all owe that debt to God because of sin. Nobody gets around that. And our debt could only be paid through the death of somebody who wasn't sinful. Because any sinner who dies only pays the debt for his own sin. Therefore, it was absolutely essential that we would have a moral sacrifice, a human being who lived a perfectly sinless life that could pay that debt for us. And this is what the Bible describes in Hebrews chapter 10. We're told in Hebrews 10 and verse 4 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And what the writer of Hebrews is referring to, he's talking to Jewish people who were familiar with Old Testament sacrifice. And he said, God gave you all these sacrifices to shed the blood, sacrifice it. He says, God was just painting pictures. Those things didn't really deal with sin. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a what? A body, a fully human body, a fully human nature you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. Then I said, it's like Jesus says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What was the will? You have prepared a body for me. I have taken on this full humanity that I might do your will. And what did Jesus do in that body? It was a body that was prepared for sacrifice. And according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, we read this. For what... For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Let me explain that for you. It says the law of God, the, the, think of the Ten Commandments of God, 
All they do is demonstrate to us how sinful we are. And that law was never intended to save us by keeping it. All the law does is shows us the weakness of who we are. But what God did, he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What it's saying is this. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That means he wasn't sinful himself, but he had flesh like sinners do. And what the son did, he dealt with our sin in his flesh. It says he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus put sin to rest through his offering of his body in the flesh. Jesus' body was necessary to pay the price of death for our sin. So Jesus came with a human body in the flesh to deal with sin. This is why it was absolutely necessary that that Jesus, when he came into the world, take on a complete, full humanity. That he might deal with sin. However, God demands more than the payment of the debt for fellowship with him. God demands something more than just payment of the debt. Let me tell you what God demands The incarnation was necessary to provide a righteousness we do not have. God demands that we be righteous. And no one is righteous on their own. So what did God do? Galatians chapter 4 puts it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son... Born of a woman, there's incarnation. And notice, he was born under what? The law. What does that mean? Well, on the surface, it certainly means that Jesus was born to the Jewish nation. They had the law of God. They had what Moses had written in the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus was born into that. But it also means this, that Jesus was born under that law, or he was born to keep that law. And the Lord Jesus Christ did so perfectly. Never violating God's law. His track record was a perfect record. Perfect righteousness. Complete fulfillment of God's law. And it says that Jesus was born of a woman in flesh, born under that law in order to redeem those who are under the law. In other words, we are cursed by the law because we have violated the law of God. Jesus is born under the law to keep the law of God that he might offer his righteous record on our behalf. If Christ was not fully man, he could not have fulfilled the law. And if Christ did not fulfill the law, you and I cannot be justified. Christ's righteous life in our place is as necessary as his death on the cross. We speak of this in terms of an exchange. Here's me, Matt. Matt is stealing lying, cheating, not loving God. Matt deserves death. That's what I owe. Here's Jesus. 
perfectly righteous, pure, right, keeping the law of God, a perfect track record. The only way for Matt to become righteous and have his debt paid is if Matt believes what Jesus has done. And through that faith and that belief and acceptance of Christ, the exchange happens. Jesus gets my record and pays its price in death. I get Jesus' record of righteousness before God and accepted by Him. But that only happens, beloved, through the incarnation. Jesus becoming man to accomplish that. That's why the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one way between us and God, and that is Jesus, the God-man himself. And he's made that way possible. So what is the necessity of the incarnation? It is essential for our debt to be paid and our righteousness to be secured before God. There's only one God and one mediator, and that is Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man. Now, we have gone through really quickly what the Bible teaches about the mystery and necessity of the incarnation. That exercise is not merely to sit here and say, okay, I've got all these facts, and I can't wait to talk to my friend about the hypostatic union. Okay? Those things are absolutely true, they're essential, they're what God wants us to know, and they've been revealed to us in his word. But here's the final thing I want to look at from Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Do you realize how intensely practical the incarnation is? Here's what I mean by that. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing to a church at Philippi. And this church has some trouble. In fact, in this epistle, he mentions by name two ladies that apparently are having a fight. And I always talk about this. When I read Philippians, I always think about this. These letters were read out loud in public. And imagine your name being called out loud in public and the apostle saying, quit fighting. And there's a lot of trouble going on. There's a lot of of difficulty in the church. And it's probably true in families and marriages and homes and communities. And how is Paul going to address these issues? You know what he brings up? The incarnation. He says, you want to resolve some fighting? Let's talk about the incarnation. What does that have to do with anything? Well, look with me at the text. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to note the humility of the incarnation. Chapter 2. Verse 5 was read for us about having the mind of Christ... Let me just show you a little bit of the context. Look at verse 27 of chapter 1. Paul says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Here's his idea. I want you to live out the gospel, the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done. He says, I want you to live in this way. Chapter 2, verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy... 
complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You can see he's pointing on unity. He's saying, I want you to be of full accord, of one mind. That will make me joyful to know that you're all living in harmony with one another. How do you do that? Look at verse 4. Well, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's what he's saying. He's not saying, don't just consider your own things, but also look out for things of others. What he's saying is, quit thinking of just yourself. Don't be the person that is so egocentric that the world revolves around you. Quit looking after simply your own interests. And by nature, we all do this as human beings. When somebody shows you a picture and you're somewhere in the picture, who's the first person you look at? Because by nature, we're all kind of, well, did I have a funny face? Was that a good picture of me? Was it a bad picture of me? This, this is in our nature. And what it's saying is, You've got to get over that. Quit looking after your own interest like the world revolves around you. Instead, look to the interests of others. Well, why should I do that? Here's the prime example, verse 5. Here's how you do this. It begins with a way of thinking or an attitude. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is possible for you. You have this through grace that comes to you through Jesus Christ. The problem is we resist the Spirit's work in this way. So he says, have this mind, adopt this way of thinking. What is this way of thinking? What is this attitude? Here's the humility of the incarnation. As God, Jesus thought of and served others. Verse 5 again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God. Now, I do need to explain something. When it talks about the form of God here, it's using a Greek word that talks about essence, And what it means is this form is this. It has the idea that there was an outward display of who he actually is. Jesus from all eternity had this outward display and all of heaven recognized him for who he actually is. It says, although Jesus had this, he was in the form of God, he didn't count that display, that form with God, a thing to be grasped. Here's the idea. Through the incarnation, Jesus didn't demand that people recognize his deity. And I don't mean recognize as in they should worship him, but he didn't grasp this thing, that there's no way I'm going to take a lower position and veil my deity. That wasn't something, that wasn't his mindset. I must be recognized as who I am in this regard. It was the idea of I will humble myself and actually veil that. So though he was in the form of God, verse 6, he didn't count equality or this, this 
this recognition of his deity, a thing to be grasped. But instead, verse 7, how did he do that? He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Very quickly, what we need to understand is that when Jesus became man, he didn't lose any of his deity. What he did is he took upon himself humanity. And when he did that, it veiled his deity. It's like this. Again, you've heard this illustration before, but I can't better it. Let's say uh, I get a brand new Ferrari. I mean, you know what a Ferrari's like, right? The statement with Ferrari is you don't pick the Ferrari. Ferraris pick you, okay? You, you've got to be a particular kind of person to have a Ferrari. And so I drive a Ferrari, and I say, hey, uh, here's my Ferrari. Why don't you take it for a spin? And you take it out. And you find the biggest mud puddle you can find and you drive that thing through that mud puddle and when you bring it back to me, it is just caked with mud. There's not one inch of paint that you can see on that Ferrari. And when you bring it back to me and you hand me the keys, I'm not going to say, what did you do with my Ferrari? I can't see it. No, the Ferrari's still there. It doesn't so much look like a Ferrari. Why? It's caked with mud. This, in a sense, is what Jesus did. When he stepped out of heaven, he didn't cease to be God. That was all there. He took up on himself humanity. That's what Paul's describing. It's like putting mud on. And so when people saw him, they saw Jesus of Nazareth. Don't we know him? Don't we know his mother and father? This is a man like us. Look at the color of his eyes. Look at the, the timber of his voice. He's, he's a man. And what it's saying is that Jesus took this step from God to cover himself, become man. That was his mindset. I'm not going to come and demand that people see me as I am. I'm going to come in humility to serve them. As God, Jesus was not thinking of himself. He was thinking of us. And he humbled himself and took upon something in order to serve us. That was his mindset. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form. Okay, verses 6 and 7 give us this amazing step from God to man. God humbled himself, took upon himself humanity. Verse 8 now, being found in this human form, he further humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is easily illustrated. When Jesus, God, stepped into this world, how did he come into this world? Was he born in a palace? No, he was born in a manger. And when he lived and walked on this earth, he said, the Son of Man has not place to lay his head. And when he lived his life, he lived a life of gentle, lowly service to others. Not thinking of himself in ways that he could get ahead, but thinking of other people. Not criticizing people, not demeaning people, jockeying for position, but he completely entirely took upon himself the one of humility and meekness, even as a man. 
And ultimately, as a man, the end of verse 8, he became obedient to the point of death. Here's this idea of human will submitted to the will of God, obeying the will of the Father, even to the point of laying down his life. He went that far. As a man, Jesus served other people. And as a man, Jesus himself was submissive to the Father's will that even included a cruel death on a cross. This is the mindset of Jesus. By his attitude and his actions, Christ is the perfect example of putting aside selfishness and serving other people. Therefore, followers of Jesus should abandon their selfishness and adopt a way of thinking that puts Christ, puts others first and honors Christ. We don't have time to look explicitly at the rest of the text, but beginning in verse 9, there's a complete reversal of this. God exalts Jesus because of this. Because Jesus took the greatest step of humility, God exalts him to the highest position. Because God honors humility. Followers of Jesus, therefore, should abandon our selfishness and adopt a way of thinking that puts others first and honors Christ. And if we would do that, do you know what would happen? It would bring peace. Remember, that's Paul's point. Quit your fighting, quit thinking about yourself, adopt this way of thinking. And it'll bring peace. We live in an era of self-exaltation. Social media fosters this. Put yourself out there. Make yourself known. Get everybody's attention and their like. This fosters victimhood. Woe is me, I am a victim in every situation because every situation I look at, I'm always the center of the situation and everybody's out to get me. And if I don't get what I want or what I like, I'm a victim because I'm the most important in this situation. Our culture and our world promotes self-importance and aggrandizement. Our our culture of capitalism, which is good. Don't misunderstand me. I don't want communism. But it fosters this notion because all week long you are targeted with ads that say this, have it your way. You deserve it. You're the most important. Every time I read an ad, I just chuckle because it's all like, this makes you happy. This is what you need. After all, you deserve it. You're the most important. Here's what you need. So start thinking of you. Quit thinking of others. You deserve it. This is what you need. And all week long, you're bombarded by that. And all of these things going on in our culture, and we sit here and we scratch our heads and we say, why can't people get along? Why is there so much anger and strife and contention in our world and in our homes and in our churches? Why does it happen like this? And we scratch our head and wonder. And the Bible comes back and says, you just don't think like Jesus. You're always 
lobbying and fighting for your position. You're always thinking about you and your own interests. It's so important to you. And you go to battle over it. Think about Jesus. He could have sat in heaven and said, no way. Those people made their bed, they ought to sleep in it. It's what they get. In humility, he veiled his essence. When he came to earth, he washed the feet of his disciples. And he laid down his life. Have that attitude. If that attitude would permeate your home, do you know what there would be? There would be peace. There would be joy. If that attitude would permeate our culture, it would solve so much of the strife that we see. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have this mind. It's not impossible. None of us are perfect at it. But if we want peace, we ought to live it out. This is the mind of Jesus. This is the humility and the glory of his incarnation. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father.